welcome to the second episode of the My Possible Self podcast. My Possible Self is a mental health and wellbeing app recommended by the NHS, the UK's National Health Service, and it features a wealth of content, tools and information that will help you look after your mental health. Currently, we are offering the app completely free of charge. So if you haven't already downloaded us and you aren't listening on the app right now, then just search My Possible Self in your app store and we will appear. I'm Gabby and in episode one of the podcast, you heard from Hannah and Fleur, the directors at My Possible Self. You learned how we came to be, why they are so passionate about helping others manage their mental well-being and why it's so important to look after your mind every single day. Today, we are looking at the foundations of getting to know and understand what's going on inside your own mind. Not everyone suffers from a mental health illness, but everybody does have days of stress, worry and anxiety. And so we're going to help you recognize the difference between going through a really tough time and when it's something a bit more urgent that needs the help of a medical professional. We're also going to cover what steps you can take either way to get help and help yourself. And we've got a fantastic guest to help us do this, psychotherapist and best-selling author, Owen O.K. So get comfy and get ready to learn some stuff. With over 25 years experience in physical and mental health, being a former NHS mental health clinical lead and having written two fantastic books, 10 to Zen and 10 Times Happier, which are aimed to improve overall mental health, reduce stress and live a more joyful, happier life. So I couldn't think of a more perfect guest to help us set up the podcast series. Welcome, Owen O'Kane. Thank you, Gabby. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I am really looking forward to to diving into this. Something that the crew at My Possible Self have talked about is that mental health has become a bit of a buzzword of late. Um, It's almost become a bit fashionable to talk about it. I'm being careful with how I say this, but we really want to make sure that the, the conversation isn't just a phase and we want people to understand what mental health is um, yeah. because how can we be expected to take care of our own if we're not quite sure? According to mentalhealth.org, mental health includes our emotional, psychological and social well-being. Mm-hmm. I thought there's no better man to basically surmise what is mental health. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a great place to start. And I agree with you, actually. I think the, the hashtag mental health has been used a lot. And I think there are two sides to that coin. It's absolutely brilliant that the conversations are beginning to open up and people are starting to talk about mental health in very, very mainstream down to earth way. So I'm really excited about that because I think it's an important thing. I think the flip side of the coin is that the hashtag and the title and that, that phrase mental health is also been used quite casually. And I think sometimes it's been manipulated or misrepresented or it's been used to market, to promote, mm. to build brands, whatever the context may be. And when I see that happening, and I see it happening a lot, I just kind of think, actually, this really sends out the wrong message. Because as a clinician who's worked in frontline mental health and run teams, there is nothing glamorous about somebody really struggling with their mental health. It isn't sexy. It's not glamorous. It's really difficult. So I think when I see the misrepresentation of it, I think we need to start thinking about using the term 
appropriately because I, I heard someone talking to me the other day and she was talking about her daughter was struggling with mental health. And when we kind of would get into the conversation a bit more, I was thinking, your daughter's having a tough time at school and she's worried about her exams, but actually clinically there was nothing terribly concerning. You know, it's absolutely that the worries were very, very understandable. It was nothing out of the ordinary, but I thought it was really interesting. The person I was talking to had framed it under a diagnostic label as this is mental health. And I think it's about, be, I, look, as you know, Gabby, I was saying to you earlier, I'm not a huge fan of diagnostic labels. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to get better at that. And I'm going to separate it. I think mental wellness is something that is relevant to us all. You know, we all need to have mental wellness to function well in everyday life. I think when you talk about mental health or mental ill health, you know, sometimes that does impact people and it gets in the way of their life. Now, what I'm really interested in is proactively helping people maintain better mental well-being to help prevent them becoming unwell. So it's about almost preventing people becoming ill as a result of mental well-being. And I think we need to start to differentiate both that not everyone becomes unwell. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does make sense because I think, like you said, with people talking about it so much and the hashtag or whatever, sometimes it's, it's normal for everybody to struggle and go through tough times. Yeah. But but something that has been from having my own mental health problems and being diagnosed, it's been a worry to me when somebody is used, like I was diagnosed with an, with an anxiety disorder. Yeah. And when people, oh, I've got an, you know, I've got an anxiety disorder, and it's it's just a moment in time where they're particularly stressed. And I know through yeah. lived experience yeah. Yeah. that they yeah. haven't. And I'm like, I hope the doctor's not misprescribing you medication. Yeah. I hope you're not overwhelming the NHS. And books like yours, 10 to Zen and 10 Times Happier, definitely do help people navigate through those tough times. And that's really important to have those kind of resources so that we're not misdiagnosing ourselves. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up from the get-go. It plays on my mind a lot. You know, I think for all of us, Gabby, I mean, no matter who we are, we will all wake up some days not feeling great. That is part of the human condition. Sometimes you wake up and you're just not in top form. Or some days you might wake up and you just might feel a bit more anxious than normal. And I think for for mainstream population, that's the norm at the moment. I did a corporate talk for an organisation a few days ago and we did a survey beforehand. And interestingly, it was fascinating. A hundred percent of people in the survey said that they felt more anxious over the past year than they'd done previously. Not surprising. Not surprising. Yeah. But interestingly, 100% of them had also said that they noticed significant variations in the mood. So it gets more interesting. And then 78% reported disrupted sleep um, over the last year. So when you start to broaden it out a bit, what you discover is actually within mainstream populations, we're discovering, particularly, I think, post-pandemic, people's mood, their anxiety levels, their sleep, their functioning, their well-being people are struggling generally mm-hmm. um, we need to normalize the fact that there are periods when variations in mood or anxiety will unquestionably move in just like your physical health some days you wake up and you think oh, i feel a bit rusty today or i've got a bit of a cold or i'm a bit tired or we're okay about that because you think well that that's normal and yeah. i think it's the same with mental wellness there are fluctuations and there are variations and we then start to move into diagnostic labels or disorders when 
that becomes more frequent than you'd want it to be. Or when it starts to get in the way of your everyday life and your everyday functioning, that's the time to get help. Well, that was leading me on to my next question. What are some of the signs that we should be looking out for, not just in ourselves, but in others, when it goes beyond worrying, yeah. feeling stressed? For me, I mean, you'll hear this described in many, many different ways. And I think it's a different the differentiation between the odd bad day, which I think is commonplace for most people, measured against having quite a few bad days. You know, so if, if I meet someone and I, you know, I'll say to them, you know, describe your last week to me. What, what's it been like? And if within the last week they've said, actually, every other day I'm struggling to get out of bed or every other day I've really struggled at work or I, I wake up with a knot on my stomach and I just find that my mind's in overdrive the whole time. My relationship is, you know, you know, struggling. I don't want to do stuff. I'm not planning stuff. When you start to hear that impact on life, then I think that's a good indicator that actually maybe now is the time to get a bit of help. It's all about equilibrium and balance because, you know, we can go through a tough time, but we might still be able to function well and recognize that there's stuff going on, but we learn how to manage that. And of course, good therapy is about teaching people how to manage it independently. You don't want to create dependence. Well, certainly as a therapist, my goal is to create independence so that somebody at the end of therapy feels, yeah, I can manage. I've got enough tools and recognition to manage this independently. That's ideally what you want to achieve. Now, if you don't achieve that, absolutely fine. So I think it's that kind of middle ground. If someone's managing well and they're getting on with their life and they're able to self-manage, then that's great. But if they're not, and suddenly they're feeling overwhelmed a lot more than they'd want to, I'd say, okay, that's the time to seek a bit of help and assurance. And the first step would be making an appointment with your GP, do you think? And then they'd refer you? I think even before that, Gabby, it's about, you know, just talk, tell someone. Because it is, it is that stigma that is still surrounding mental health around, God, what would someone think if they knew mm. I was anxious? What would someone think if they knew I was feeling this way? And the reality is most human beings have enough insight to know, okay, yeah, I get it. And if they don't get it personally, they haven't been there, they probably know somebody who has been there. So I think we underestimate each other when we have these conversations. Just that opening up to someone that you trust. Yeah. And no isn't going to judge it or give you a hard time. It's just the beginning of the, okay, well, it's out there now. You've said it. Yeah. Yeah. You've shared it with someone. I think that's a really positive. I think for someone, you know, going to the doctor or making an appointment with a therapist, that can be an enormous step for someone at the beginning enormous and it can feel quite terrifying whereas I think just take it gradually you know just kick off by maybe you know talk it through with someone that you trust maybe try some of the the online stuff the apps the self-help the books see how you get on with that and then if that's not working and you think actually I need a bit more unless it's urgent or it's a crisis I think you kind of phase people in at a, at a kind of pace that they're comfortable with What's your take on self-help, like trying to do things oh. for yourself? <laughs> I mean, it's my bug burn. I'm a therapist and I'm a self, you know, I write self-help books. I, mm. I guess I try to write self-help books from a place of experience, not only professionally, but personally. I try and use my 25 years experience to put into the books and say, look, this is what I see work. This is what I think is helpful. So I think I try to use a platform in a respect 
comfortable way. And I try to use it in a way that hopefully reaches people and gives them something practical to work with. I think self-help in itself has to be really carefully measured. I think always, always look at who the author is, always look at who's presenting the information, what's their experience, what's their background, where are they talking from? Because I think self-help is brilliant. But if I see a book written by someone and I think, but where, where is your professional training? Where's your under- We train for years to understand you know, the complexity of some of the disorders. Where's the training and expertise? You, know, you wouldn't walk into Tesco if someone was set there claiming to be a GP and say, oh, can you? Yeah. You just, you just wouldn't you do it. write me a prescription? Yeah. You'd want to know that you're talking to a registered qualified doctor. And I think it's the same with self-help. If you're claiming to direct people's lives, you have a responsibility then to be given information that's going to help. And not to be particularly with anxiety, Gabby. I mean, you'll probably appreciate this. You talked about anxiety earlier. Um, I was at um, a gym about a year ago, and there was a self help program going on in the gym. And I knew the guy running the program was also trying to write a book. And he had created a board in the gym with a list of things to do when you were feeling anxious. And everything on the list was a safety behavior. A safety behavior is something that you will do to try and dull your anxiety or quieten it down. But actually the problem with safety behaviors is longer term, they will keep your anxiety alive. Oh, can you give me an example then of what was that safety behavior? People when they're anxious will often seek reassurance from other people or they will go, if you were health anxious, for example, you might go on and check with people that your symptoms are okay. You might go online and check to see that everything's okay and that there's nothing terrible going to happen to you. And then you might go back an hour later and check again. Now, we would call that a safety behaviour because it becomes an unhealthy checking or reassurance seeking. Now, while short term, it might quieten the anxiety, what it's doing longer term is it maintains a pattern. So you almost have this feedback loop where actually what you're doing is you're making your anxiety worse. Yeah. And this guy had a list of safety behaviours on the board about things that people should do. And what they were, they were all short-term safety behaviour mechanisms, but none of them were aimed at longer-term maintenance. And I looked at it and I thought, God, that would be really damaging. You know, for somebody who's got an anxiety disorder and they read that list, they're going to think, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to feed my safety behaviours, meaning you're never going to break, you know, you're going to break those patterns of anxiety. Because with anxiety, what you do is you you go the opposite direction. You know, you do what makes you uncomfortable. Joshua Fletcher calls those types of people anxiety pirates. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it comes from a place of well-meaning. I mean, I don't want to slide yeah. anything off. They, they're, but, they're well intended. Well, that's around the subject of anxiety. I guess I'll share part of my story. I sought professional help because I started to suffer from severe panic attacks. And I think about when you talk about safety measures, that breathing into a bag that you see on all the films and TV shows when somebody's hyperventilating and it's actually the worst type of breathing you should be doing to try and bring yourself round. And going back to what you were said towards the beginning of our chat about the first step being to talk to somebody and not necessarily going straight to your GP. And I actually was the opposite. Like I spoke to a doctor before I confided. It took me years to even tell a friend because I didn't want to be the girl with the panic disorder. Yeah, yeah. 
But, you know, again, referencing the start of our conversation where we talked about how it's important to use words in regards to mental health the right way, it really gets my back up when somebody says, oh, you gave me a panic attack or I just had a panic attack or they'll put it on Facebook or whatever. And I'm like, girl, if you'd have had a panic, a panic real panic attack, you, you wouldn't know. be posting on Facebook about it. You know, you, yeah, you would exactly. think you were potentially going to have a heart attack and die. That's how Absolutely. bad mine were. So. Oh, they're terrifying. I had panic attacks in my early 20s. So I grew up in Northern Ireland um, in the Troubles, a lot of violence and bombs and all of that stuff. I mean, it was hilarious, actually, because I didn't realise I was anxious really until I left Northern Ireland. So, it, you know, it was actually when I stepped out of it wow. that suddenly I realised. And, I, you know, one day out of nowhere, I had this physiological heart was beating fast Felt like I couldn't breathe, really thought I was having a heart attack and contacted the doctor about something is terribly wrong here. And I didn't realize at the time that that was a panic attack until later. Um, and it made complete sense because, you know, I'd grown up somewhere with a lot of anxiety and tension. Um, I was a gay guy. I was just about to come out and tell people about that. So that was, you know, when I look back on it now, it made complete sense that my, you know, my sympathetic nervous system is going through the roof. There was threat everywhere. It felt like, oh my God, there's too much to manage. So of course, chemically, the panic made total sense because of course there's going to be too much cortisol. There's going to be too much adrenaline. I'm going to feel wired to be ready for some danger because it was just way too much going on in my life. So I think that's the thing about panic. You know, it's actually, we... We call it panic disorder, but when you look at you look at it practically, there's nothing disordered about it at all. It's just basically a physiological mechanism where the body gives you a warning. Okay, too much. You know, bring it down a few notches. Yeah, it's giving you a really clear warning. There's nothing disordered about that. In fact, it's very ordered. Yeah. So panic is a is a it feels bloody horrible as you know. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. Yeah. And then of course I'm frightened of having another one and oh god yeah. what have I do I have a heart attack what have I die and then suddenly it can become overwhelming but actually when you look at what the role of panic is the role of panic is to bring you back to your point of equilibrium you know it's that it's that wake-up call it's a it's a reminder it's a physiological body because if you look at a diagnosis of panic panic is you know it's misinterpretation of physiologically what's going on in the body you know that is a diagnosis of panic disorder it always fascinates me with a panic attack, how for me, and I know for many, and like the example you just gave with yourself, it can come days later, weeks later. It's like yeah. your brain and your body are kind of catching up with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. it's like, yeah. yeah, it's. I describe it like it's like leaving a bath running and you don't know yeah. what, you, know, you don't know what level you've left the top running, but then suddenly it'll just get to a point when the water will overflow. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And I think just depending on how much is going on in your life, that will, you know, that dictates how full on the taps are at the time. But then suddenly you, you don't really get that warning when suddenly you're going to get the surge of chemicals in the body, which then are the kind of shutdown mechanism. OK, enough, you know. And if you look at what we do in panic, you know, we get people to stop, we get them to ground, we get them to regulate their breathing. You're essentially re-regulating the physiological body so you're just basically saying okay slow down so when i'm working with anyone who's got panic disorder i never really try and make it a problem you know of course i'll identify with how horrible and how uncomfortable it feels but the moment people understand okay this is not awful it's not going to kill me nothing bad's going to happen 
it's literally my body, my mental and my physiological, my mental state, my physiological state, kind of trying to get me back to a point of equilibrium and stability. The minute they see it as a, an ally rather than a, an enemy, then they're able to work with their panic much, much more effectively. And, and for me, I think that's really exciting because suddenly it doesn't become the monster anymore. I think that's the same for most mental health issues. You look at depression, you look at broader generalized anxiety disorders. You know, if you can work with them and kind of say, okay, what is this trying to communicate to me? What tweaks do I need to make to my life? What do I need to adjust? What do I need to reevaluate in my life? It can become an incredible opportunity for moving forward, really, with a lot more hope and optimism. So when we're talking about um, mental health disorders, or you don't like the word disorder, what are the main, and again, anybody that's sort of new to, like, wanting to understand more about mental health, um, yeah. we've talked about anxiety, what what are the other, like, mo more widespread common illnesses? Yeah, dep depression, we, we know about, we hear depression talked about a lot. And again, I think it's another word that can be misused, but depression will come with a lot of symptoms like feeling demotivated, sadness, overwhelmed, difficulty sleeping, you know, difficulties in many parts of life, feeling hopeless sometimes. And I think people forget that it's feeling hopeless or even someone who's got some degree of suicidal ideation, that can be a normal symptom of being depressed. So even though it feels very abnormal, it can be a very, very normal symptom of that presentation. And depressive disorders fall into many different types. But I would say generally, again, if moods are fluctuating, it's difficult to function, it's difficult to concentrate, it's difficult to feel excited about the future, you, you've lost that sense of hope, you don't want to see people, all of, you know, those symptoms are knocking around, I would say it's probably a good idea. To, to speak to someone. With the anxiety disorders, you know, often if I'm supervising a therapist, I will often talk about when you're working with someone with depression, what you're trying to do, it's almost like trying to put your foot in the accelerator in a car. You're trying to motivate, you're trying to move forward, you're trying to almost pick someone up from a very dark place and get them back on track again. With an anxiety disorder, it's a very, very different thing. It's almost like you're putting your foot in the brake. You're trying to slow people down. So Anxiety disorders fall into different remits. So you can have generalized anxiety disorder, which is somebody who will worry about many things. They will wake up worrying about their health. They will wake up worrying about work, their kids, family, mortgage, the future, the pandemic. It will be a list of what ifs about lots of things. And it can sometimes vary. Um, you've already talked about panic disorder, which is kind of quite specific, which is a physiological misinterpretation of what goes on in the body. You can have other disorders like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it falls under um, anxiety disorders. It might play out as a physical thing, like the need to check or clean. Um, but it can also be um, somebody can have intrusive thoughts where they have thoughts that they don't want that keep coming back over and over and over again. So you're working with somebody on how they can break that cycle. But you can also have social anxiety, which is a genuine anxiety about interacting with other people, how you may be seen by them. You could have health anxiety where all of the worry focus goes on health. So it depends on the individual. Now, in my experience, when, when you're doing your, you know, your psychology therapy training and stuff, 
the textbook and some of the lectures will make you believe that somebody will rock up in therapy perfectly presenting with panic disorder or perfectly presenting with depression. In the real world, I think people end up, you know, sometimes people may show up with a primary problem. So, for example, somebody may come along and I meet them and they may have OCD and the OCD is intrusive thoughts. But what I'll also discover is that they've also got elements of panic in their presentation. And because they're so exhausted and worn down by the anxiety, they also might be a little bit depressed. So it's really, really interesting that I think we need to move away. And this is my difficulty with disorders, really. I think there's a danger that we pigeonhole people into a box. And I think, you know, I run NHS IAP teams. I was a clinical lead for a team. And, you know, one of my challenges was sometimes that we were keen to put people into diagnostic labels. And I understand why we need to do that. But no one ever just presents with one issue because life isn't that clear cut. It kind of has a bit of a knock on effect. And I think we have to get better at treating the whole person. And the fact that, yeah, because someone's anxious doesn't mean that they're not going to be depressed. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes therapeutic, it's a good idea to have a key main focus on an area. But you also don't exclude that the person's got all of these other things going on. So I like to think more in terms of, you know, look, sometimes we can have variations of mood. Sometimes we can have variations in anxiety. And we need to work on that. When I ran in NHS teams, you might find this interesting. When we set up group therapy and we called the group depression, you know, you know, 12 week depression course, we couldn't fill the group. Just couldn't get people to come to the groups. When we changed the the the, the title, I said one of the NHS teams I worked for, I was I set up the, the group therapy program. When we changed the, the the title of the group to boost your mood, the group was full. No way. That is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Passing. When we called the group um, Learn to Manage Your Anxiety or something, um, again, difficulty recruit. When we called the group Manage Your Worry, we filled the group. So I think there's something quite telling about that, that when you use terminology that is just humane and representative of everyday life, then people will resonate with that. Whereas I think when we get too fixated on the labels and the disorders and because then that can make people feel, oh, my God, I've got a disorder. There is something wrong with me. There is nothing wrong with you. You're a human being who's struggling and through a hard time. That doesn't make you disordered. It makes you human. And that's the conversation I'm trying to broaden. If you do need professional help, finding the right counsellor or therapist you don't always get there on the first attempt, do you? No, <laughs> I'm bringing this up in case anybody's ever tried it once and been mortified or horrified or because I've heard these stories and Absolutely. then they've never gone again. Absolutely. It's one of the things if I'm working privately with a client, it's one of the first things I'll say to them is this primarily has to be right for you. I have to be the right therapist for you. Have to be the right fit. You've got to be comfortable with me. Now, look. Thankfully, most of the times the relationships work out fine, and we do a great piece of work together. But that doesn't mean that every now and then you're going to meet somebody and you think I'm I'm not the right guy for this person, you know, for whatever reason. Or you know, it could be it could be anything. You know, there could just be one aspect of my personality that doesn't fit for them. But I think when you're choosing a therapist, you know, it's doing all the due diligence stuff, checking their qualifications, who they are. Um, what type of treatment they're offering. So, for example, with anxiety disorders, the, the recognised evidence treatment is cognitive behavioural therapy. 
the evidence in the research is really, really clear, clear in that. So if you've got an anxiety issue, you're probably going to get more from a CBT approach than you are a generic counselling approach. Um, if you've got a trauma presentation, if you've got C um, PTSD, for example, again, the evidence for cognitive behavioural therapy is really strong. Likewise, there's another treatment for trauma called EMDR, which is the use of rapid eye movement. Very, very strong evidence around treating trauma for that. You said there's two different types of trauma. Okay. Yeah, I talk about tall T traumas and small T traumas. Yeah, so what do you mean by that? Um, I think, I mean, again, PTSD as a post-traumatic stress disorder is another term that's, you know, it's bandied around quite a bit. And when you meet someone with, you know, genuine PTSD, you feel it the minute they come into your room, you know. You're watching their face, their eyes, or their vocal tone. You you hear them, you know, relive that trauma and the terror and fear of going near whatever happened. It's hard work to get somebody comfortable with going back to that event and working with them. And I think often you'll see people come in and say, oh, I've got PTSD, and you sit down and you work with them and you realize actually, yeah, it's been a, it was a traumatic event. And many of us have gone through traumatic experiences in our life which I would call small T traumas. Now, that's not to minimize the trauma, but it doesn't mean that you've got PTSD. It just means that you've had difficult times in your life, difficult experiences that you may have dealt with and integrated, but it doesn't mean that you've got trauma presenting. Going back to you um, at the start of our conversation saying how important it is to talk, I thought it was really interesting when you said that by talking, you're moving the trauma from the wrong side of your brain to the right side of your brain. Yeah, I mean, basically, in a nutshell, I mean, if you're trained in a model of therapy like EMDR, which is one of the models I'm trained in, they talk about often trauma memories are placed on the wrong part of the brain. So essentially, trauma memories sit on the right hand side of the brain where your amygdala threat systems are. And if a, if a trauma memory is unprocessed, it just basically means that for the person living with the trauma, the event can feel as real today as it did, say, five years ago. Wow. So all of the symptoms that they get, the flashbacks, the nightmares, the rumination, the hypervigilance, the avoidance, the, you know, the nightmares, whatever the context might be for them, they are, this is happening to them because the memory is still very active and alive. It hasn't been processed. It hasn't been dealt with. Good therapy will help someone process a trauma memory. So the picking apart the memory, the reliving the memory, the re-scripting the memory will then help move that experience to a different part of the brain. It's almost like filing the memory away in a library. There's part of the brain called the hippocampus. And that means that the memory is placed in a different part of the brain. That doesn't mean that it's gone away and that you ever forget about what's happened. You're not erasing the memory. But what you're doing is you're integrating it into memory so that it becomes that. It's a memory. Mm. But it's an experience that you've survived and it's part of your past, whereas somebody who's living with active PTSD will be living with the memory and experiencing it as real in the moment as they did back at the time. So is this, in term, going back to the two types of, of trauma, is that for PTSD? For PTSD, I'd be shifting. talking about large T traumas. For smaller T traumas, someone may say, oh my God, I had a really bad childhood and it was tough and I was bullied and stuff. That doesn't mean that they've got PTSD. Yeah. It means those were traumatic experiences, but it might be actually over the period of time and by talking and by getting support that they've actually inadvertently managed to process and deal with the trauma. Right. That doesn't mean that you still, you would, you, you would use it in therapy and work with it and help them understand why they may be struggling. 
But I think it's important to differentiate the two. Mm. This is something I found, again, really interesting. You believe that we can tell ourselves our own rehearsed version of our life. Oh, yes, our stories, yes. I, I was talking to, I think I was talking to Fern Cotton about this. On, I did some Instagram lives with Fern Cotton and I do some work on her happy place and we were having a conversation on Instagram live and I was talking about these kind of rehearsed versions that we can tell ourselves. And I think many of us do that, that we rock up and we have a, a rehearsed version of our story and, and we tell that story over and over and over again like it's true. But we tell the respectable version. And I think sometimes good therapy can be about stripping that down a bit. And actually, I've just been writing, I've just finished my third book. And I was writing about this recently, actually. And I was talking about my own therapy, um, one of my first lots of therapy ever. And it was with a Catholic nun, ironically, which is a very long story, but she was brilliant. And she was really interesting and fun. And I remember at the beginning going along and it was a bit like, I'm not really quite sure why I'm here. I had stuff going on. Never heard of a non therapist as well, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was ironic. I mean, the irony of the whole thing was crazy because I, I just had an experience of a couple of panic attacks, didn't quite understand. And I had sort of just come out as gay. I, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next. I was in a monastery for three years as well. And I'd left. Yeah, I was trained to be a priest when I was, when I, yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was about 19, I did three years in a monastery. And so I came out and I hadn't come out as gay yet. I was about to. So there was all of this stuff going on in my life. And someone that's a lot of stuff. It was a lot of stuff. I mean, that's only some of it. But I mean, it, there was a lot. And someone gave me this recommendation. And I they just gave me the person's name. Her name was Kathleen. She was brilliant. And um, someone gave me their name. But actually, I genuinely didn't know that it was Sister Kathleen. I just was given the name, go and see Kathleen. I said, OK, I'll go along and see her. And I go along and there were, you know, there was a there was a clue in the fact when I got the address, I ended up in a convent. And I just thought, okay, well, this is a bit weird. Or if I ended up, I thought I was getting away from all that. And here I am in a convent again. And I go in and, and she wasn't in the, the outfit or anything. She was just in plain clothes and stuff. And she was great and she was very human and funny and understood life probably one of the best therapists I've ever met actually um, and we just stuck up a really good relationship and one of my first sessions I went in and I was telling my rehearsed story and I was talking about life and my family and growing up and da, 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 da. and I was just telling this like it was happening to someone else it was my rehearsed the respectable version of my story right and she very skillfully and I always remember that she very skillfully just went really really quiet and she said, you keep telling me that you're fine. And I was using the word fine quite a bit. Yeah, I'm, yeah, family was fine. Life was fine. I'm fine. She said, you keep mentioning that you're fine. And she said, um, you don't look fine and you don't sound fine to me. And she said, in fact, you look really sad. And the minute she said it, I remember even now talking about it, I just remember the moment she said it, feeling something almost like disintegrate. And I thought, oh, my God, she's got me. And I couldn't, you know, when someone, you feel upset about something and you can't run away, there was nowhere to go. And I was like, oh, my God, she's seen me. And, of course, the moment she said it, I welled up. And then just completely unexpectedly, and I don't cry that easily, just unexpectedly I cried. Wow. And then she just stopped and she said, should we maybe start again? And she said, let's go back to the story and let's let's start again. And she said, 
I want the no holes version, you know. Don't wow. don't hold back. You don't need to apologize. You don't need to dress it up. No one's going to judge you dear. And then I started, <laughs> started again. Oh and that gosh. version of the story was very different. And I think, you know, in my own, you, you know, I think in, in my line of work, you have to utilize every experience that you have and put it into your work. So I think when I meet somebody and they come along to therapy and stuff, you know, and they'll come along and say, oh, I just want some help with public speaking or I just want to feel more confident or um, I just want to cope better at work. My boss is pissing me off. And then, yeah, OK, that's lovely. And you just kind of let that play out for a bit. And then suddenly, you, you know, normally get to the real reason yeah. why, why someone is there. So I often talk about, you know, we all do this. We all present what we think is respectable and acceptable. Whereas actually therapy is the place not to do that. Therapy is the place to, you know, present you. Yeah. I don't care about how successful or rich or talented or bright you are. I don't care. I'm not interested, but I'm interested in you. I would imagine a lot of folks that do this don't realise they're doing it either. There'll be the ones that do, but there'll probably be a lot that don't, right? Of course. Of course. It's such an automated thing to do, isn't it? We all do it. And my God, it's it. It's, you know, but I think, you know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning about, you know, what makes good mental well-being, good mental well-being is just about honesty and authenticity and not apologising for who you are. Mm. Taking the thread of religious um, people, I have to say I really enjoyed the story of you going to confession. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it actually sparked an idea because you were... Um, you know, rightly so, pointing out that confession is about unburdening yourself, but this particular yeah. priest was quite yeah, yeah. deaf. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's just say, I mean, I don't want to spoil it because I, I encourage anyone listening who hasn't read your book to read the book 10 times uh -huh. happier, but um, it actually inspired for me. I said to the guys at My Possible Self, I was like, you know what we need to create in the app? We need to create an unburden box yeah. and it's a place where you can put down literally like you're going to confession. Yeah. Maybe whatever you write disappears in 24 hours or maybe that's a lovely you, idea. You can choose if you keep it or not or that that's a lovely idea. You you sparked that from your funny story about confession. Well, what I think what you're talking about there is you're talking about shame. And I think this this is at the crux for me. Most people's struggles relate to some level to some degree of shaming. And if it's not an event that's happened in their life, it's either a sense of shame about I should be coping, I should be doing better, I can't believe this is happening to me. What will people think? If you listen to people when they're struggling, there is always an attachment of shame at some level. And I think many of us grow up in cultures of shame, whether that, you know, I mean, I, I talk about this very openly as a you know, Irish, Catholic and gay, I could write a PhD on this stuff, you know, <laughs> yeah. everything, you know, for me, for me, it was like, if it feels good, it must be bad. You know, it's just like... <laughs> That's the Catholic guilt right there, isn't it? I mean, I would go to bed, my bedroom at home growing up, there was like, you know, there was Jesus to the right, you know, there was a statue of the Virgin Mary with the luminous eyes directly in front of me. There was a crucifix above my bed. I mean, it was a whole shebang. Wow you know, holy water thrown over us, going out the door and stuff. I mean, it was all well-meaning and stuff, but I mean, there was, you know, it was all mm. driven by being good, being a good person. And, and I think these narratives, even though they can be well-meaning, they inflict a sense of shame because what they don't allow for is they don't allow us to be human. Because as human beings, we do get it wrong. 
as human beings, we will make mistakes, we will screw up, we will upset people, we will fail. That is part of being a human. And I think not only religions, but it can be family scripts, it can be cultures, it can be even your schooling. We can get all of these very, very almost subtle messages about, yeah, but you need to be this, you should be that, you must be that. And we carry all this with us. And then when we don't meet those standards that we think we should be meeting, we then start to carry some degree of shame about, oh my God, I'm, I'm letting people down or I'm wrong, or I'm sinful, or I'm dirty, or I'm bad, or I'm not good enough, whatever the context may be. And I, I love this idea of your, I'm going to call it the shame box, but I think it's great. Yeah, well, I just kind of thought, you know, a place, a safe place where you can literally say everything you want to, like, I want to smother my partner. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I want to, um, I don't know, scream at my child, all the yeah. things you don't do, but just yeah. get getting it so it's not sitting within you. It's like getting it in the box. But it goes somewhere. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just giving people permission to, to be human. And I mean, you're kind of moving into territory about feelings and emotions and how we are. I mean, we are fixated at the moment. And I think social media and media generally has a, a huge part to play in all this here. But we have this notion that we're, meant to feel happy all of the time we're meant to feel good all the time we're meant to look good all of the time now i read this is going to sound ironic my book one of my books is on happiness but it's not a fluffy book on happiness it's more hard hitting than about where you get in the way mm. of your own happiness but i think we never really talk about the permission to feel low the permission to feel angry the permission to to be disappointed the permission to feel you know, these are all part of human experience and there's so much energy goes on all of the other stuff, you know, the shiny stuff, the be happy, the be successful, the achieve, the do more, be better. We go on the Instagram, everything's perfect, it's glossy, it's lovely. Everyone's having an amazing time, apparently. But of yeah. course they're not. Yeah. And you and I know they're not. They're like, you, you know, they're, they're having the odd bad day like we do. And we need to start including all of these other things that happen, these negative experiences and these negative emotions. They are not bad. They're not wrong. They are just part of your human experience. It's about how you learn to work with them. And going back to your book, 10 Times Happier, you almost think, I, I sort of know this, but the way you say it is like, it's like, well, duh. That was for me, a lot of it was like, well, duh. But we get in our own way. And why is it that we listen more to the negative thoughts? than the positive ones how do we silence this inner critic that's just so annoying versus yeah. like amplifying our own cheerleader because i think yeah. that's sort of what you help a lot with in the book yeah, i mean it's a really it's a good question and it's a really important question because you know we, we have about eighty thousand thoughts a day on average you know that's what the neuroscientists tell us and some of the research would say that about 60 percent of our thinking is either critical or negative in nature so when you think about that that's a lot of that's a lot of heavy content for some people mm. and I think it's it's you know it's primarily driven by the fact that we are hardwired to be in threat mode you know from the Anderthal times we've kind of been developed to to be primed to, to watch out for threat and danger mm. so a lot of that has been set in place for you know for as long as we can remember really but we've developed we've become more sophisticated but in some ways, we haven't really caught up because often we're still driven by those mechanisms of anxiety and fear. And I think that the very nature of how we're, how we're wired means that when the negative stuff comes up, you may get it wrong. You're not good enough. 
what if this doesn't happen? What if you make a mistake? If you look at that, that's threat-driven language. And the human brain almost tricks us into believing that it's a protective mechanism. If you listen to that, it's going to prevent you making a fool out of yourself or making a mistake or getting it wrong or failing in some way. So we engage with that content much, much more because we can almost buy into the notion, okay, well, this, this could maybe be helpful. This might prevent something going wrong. So I think it's often driven by anxiety that we gravitate and we link more into negative critical type thinking because it resonates with a sense of fear that I think many of us walk around with. Is that the kind of inspiration behind your other book, 10 to Zen, as in when people are are kind of listening to that voice and are sort of catastrophizing? and Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And the motivation behind 10 to Zen was because, you know, we've got experts everywhere telling us how we need to think, how we should reframe our thoughts and all of that stuff. And it's brilliant and it's really, really important stuff. But the bottom line is that if you've got an overactivated threat system, you will not be able to engage the rational part of your brain. So you've got a part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. That helps you think much more rationally in much more measured ways. But if you've got a brain that's in threat mode and you're chemically, you know, surging with all of these unhelpful chemicals that are telling you that something is going to go wrong, you're going to feel wired. You're going to feel jittery. You're going to feel like your mind is moving at a million miles an hour because there's too much going on. And 10 to Zen was really about teaching people to recognize that and to create that space where they can actually begin to deactivate or quiet the threat systems. In 10 minutes. Yeah, in 10 mm. minutes a day. Because, you know, I just kind of thought, I'm not going to write a technique for an hour a day because, you know, the people I've worked with and treated in my career, they haven't got an hour a day. Mm. But they, they will make 10 minutes a day work. So I thought, well, I might as well create something that I know can work sharply, quickly and succinctly rather than create something that I know people are not going to use. Now, I was very conscious that people were going to perhaps challenge 10 minutes a day and say, oh, is that enough? My argument is, well, it's better than nothing. And unapologetically, that, that book was about teaching people to recognize, OK, you need to know how much noise and volume is going on in your head. Because when you do that, then you have a choice with some of the techniques in the book on how you quieten the noise, how you reduce the volume, how you can bring that content down and gain a sense of control back. Because when you do that, then you can then grab a breath and say, okay, I'm now feeling. Yeah, I've got this. I'm just feeling a bit more grounded. And then at that point, you can then begin to think about, okay, where are my thoughts? What patterns have I fallen into today? Okay, how can I reshape that? But I think if you try and work with someone when they're in that kind of frantic, frazzled, threat mode state, you achieve little to nothing. So if you can kick off your day or fit this into your day at some point, the quality of your day changes significantly. And, you know, to be honest, this was a really heartwarming thing about doing these boots. It wasn't part of a plan. It, It just evolved and happened. And this incredible opportunity came to do these books. What really strikes me about it is that you reach people who ordinarily may not seek help. Every day I get a message from somebody who has read the books saying that it's changed something fundamentally for them or that one line in the book has just made them stop and think or they're practicing 10 to 10 every day and they're coping much better at home. And I think for me that that's the power in this work. And, and I hope that even, you know, work like we're doing today is that if it inspires people to become interested and to, to really start thinking about how they look after their mind and how they take care of themselves, then 
we kind of do in some way set off this revolution where we're all helping each other. You know, we do this work today. We hope that the people that listen to this today become motivated in some way to get more engaged with their life in a way that's helpful. Yeah, it's like, you know, we all know that eating well is good for the body and and the mind. But this kind of mental wellness, we should all be taking care of our minds. And I think books like like yours, Owen, really, really help. And hopefully podcasts like this one. And I'm sure they will. I mean, I'm I'm always astounded by the fact that, you know, we, we do this all the time, don't we, as our jobs. We're having conversations with people and but you just never, ever know when a word or a sentence is going to resonate. Or I'll, I'll tell you this great story. Well, for me, it's a great story because it changed how I interact with social media. So when I first kicked off on the book journey and stuff, um, I wasn't really into social media at all. I mean, this was only two years ago. And I was really reluctant to, you know, there's one thing doing the books, but getting on Instagram and doing videos and stuff. I just want, I didn't want to, I haven't been really honest about it. You know, I sometimes go on Instagram and there's just so many people telling me how to live my life and, you know, the big I am and everyone's shouting loudly about stuff. I just think I'm not really sure I'm comfortable being part of all of that. Yeah. But anyway, my manager had a really helpful conversation and she said, but, you know, you've got all this experience, you do the books, you've got training, you've got expertise, you can hand over tips to people that might be really helpful. Anyway, my first video I ever done a couple of years ago took about a day to do. That's how bad it was. Just looking at a camera was like, oh, I want to feel awkward. I don't want to do this. That, yeah. that sort of, there's a whole mountain to climb to just get over all of the weirdness about putting myself out there yeah publicly doing any of this stuff anyway long long story short I started doing it and then eventually I started to ease into it a bit more and you know Instagram I use regularly now and I've got a lovely community on there that interact and it, it it's a really great space actually to, to do this type of work but in the early days I did a video one day about hope and um and I was still battling with, oh, God, what are people saying about me? And I, I don't want to appear like some twat who's on Instagram <laughs> shouting out, or you don't want to appear show-offy, or any, all, all of right. this kind of Irish Catholic stuff, to be quite honest, started coming in about, oh, God. Oh, the intrusive thoughts are creeping yeah, in. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to be up yourself, and people think you're a show-off. And I can hear all of that script playing away in the background. And this, one out of nowhere one day, I did this Hope video, and I got a message on my Instagram account. And it was a, a woman who had messaged me. I was the guy himself, I was the guy himself, actually, and he had said he had been feeling extremely depressed for a number of weeks. Came across the video accidentally on Instagram, and he had been planning that day, a very serious plan to take his life that day. And he came across the video by accident, and I was talking about Hope. And that whatever was going on in your life at the moment is temporary. Everything is always temporary situations and that there is always a way through. And I was talking that that was the theme of the talk, really. And he said something about it resonated with him. And he went in and spoke to his wife that day and told her what was happening. And she brought him to GP and the GP got him help and da 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 da. And he started on medication and da da da. And the story went on. And he sent a message to say, I just wanted to say thank you because that video saved my life you and saved his life yeah but it's not about that i don't want it to, to sound in any way ego or narcissistic driven but the reason i tell the story is that it's not about me feeling good about it but it was the platform mm. my reluctance to use the platform then suddenly i thought 
wow, there is value in this. So regardless of what people think or any of my own obstructions or any of my own self-doubt about doing this stuff, actually that one video proved to be a really powerful device for this one person who needed help and that then didn't know how to access it or what to do. And that changed my relationship going forward. All the kind of, should I, will I, what will people think? It was a brilliant thing to happen because when I when I use it now, I go on, I'll create content, I'll throw the stuff out there. And I think actually it's not really about me and it's not I'm not there for validation. I'm too old and wise to go seeking that stuff. But I just kind of think if one person looks at the video and it gives them something of value, then I've done my job. And I think that yeah. that's and same with the books. And I yeah. come back to that every time. Yeah, it's, it was the same thing at my possible self. Like, I mean, when I joined and I looked at all the reviews on the app store and started reading how, you know, this this app, I mean, is all clinically certified content. The the team are incredibly mindful of that. And we work with the, the Priory Group. But just the, the comments about how it's just helped so many people. Yeah, I was like, OK, I'm in. Let's do this. It, 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 it's powerful because I think yeah. you know if, you, if, if, if if that's within your day's work and you've achieved that, and then someone listens to the podcast and they hand it over to a mate and say, "Oh, have a listen to this interview," or "Have a listen to that interview," then it's it's a knock-on effect. And I think that's that's what I get really excited about in this work. That that the whole time I think we should all just be handing over our experience. Okay, this is what I know. This is what I see. Work. Okay, I'm going to give that to you. God, you're going to now hand that over to someone else and we just keep doing that and I think that's that's what proper support looks like yeah supporting ourselves and others I think yeah. is, is the key takeaway in terms of lowering the stress barometer and and achieving that happier perspective what are some of the things that you found effective that work for you Owen I think the key thing really is about for me personally is prioritizing where the gaps are in my day you give yourself gaps a lot of people don't a lot of people don't i've got much better at it actually because i found that it's really easy to roll out of bed and then suddenly you're on a call you're seeing a client you're doing a talk you're going off to do an interview and then suddenly you're in this autopilot mode and i've got much better at looking through my day and say okay well look for me to do my job well i know that i need to kind of practice what i preach so I know that I need to stop and I do my 10 to 10 every day. I meditate every day. I try and get for a walk at some point. I try and get to the gym when I can fit it in. These are all of the things that I think help sustain me. So I kind of got much better planning my day and looking and thinking, okay, where's the gap? Mm. Where, where, where's the 15-minute walk around the block? Um, and I think that really has been monumentally important for me just in terms of managing stuff. I think at a more kind of personal level, I think dropping a lot of my own expectations around, particularly some of my own perfectionism, particularly over the last couple of years around how I think I should be and getting it right all of the time and it being perfect. And just keeping it really simple that, you know, if I show up in life and, and I'm honest and, and I'm as authentic as I can be and I do my best, then everything else doesn't matter. And I kind of have that mantra in my mind every day as I approach my day. Like as long as I, I'm honest, I'm authentic, and I do my best, that's as much as I can do today. And I've noticed that when I do that, even if I go off track a bit or something doesn't work out or go to plan, I find that brings me back to a sense of stability. 
and a, a greater sense of focus. And it kind of helps me manage my own inner critic if it would come out to play. I love um, that. And the, the people I surround myself with as well. I think that's hugely important. I think when I was younger, I probably sometimes invested time in relationships that actually weren't healthy or good for me. Haven't we all? <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of toxicity out there. And I think if you're going through a tough time in life and you're battling stuff and you've got difficult stuff going on, if you're surrounded by people who are toxic and judgmental and critical or envious or whatever the context may be, it can have a really negative detrimental impact in your life. And I think mm. having to think about who you surround yourself with, the environments, the people you're around, I think it's hugely important. Definitely. I was just going to add that something um, I shared with my mum and she found really helpful was, um, do you know Gabby Bernstein, the sort of spiritual, she's written quite a few self-help books. She's got a podcast called Dear Gabby. Something that I, I liked, one of her techniques is what are the, the daily non-negotiables for living yeah. a more kind of Zen day. So yeah. for her, it's like meditation. So she tells her team at 12 o'clock every day, I don't care who it is or what the agenda is. I need 30 minutes from at 12 and I do my daily practice kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. I said that to my mum because she can get stressed. So I said, you need to f figure out what your non-negotiables are. And for her, yeah. she landed on swimming. So she swims ah. every morning and it it's, she's almost a different woman for it. Yeah, but yeah. it was actually putting the the verbiage of what are your non-negotiables. So it's like, it's easy to be like, well, I've got to take my stepdad to an appointment or whatever because she looks Absolutely. after him or whatever, whatever. But it's like, no, this is going to make me a better wife, a better mom, a better human. Absolutely. I had a really good example of that. Though. I'm, I'm off on holiday next week and I haven't had a break in a while, actually, probably too long. I mean, it's just been pandemic and life and, I, you know, it's been, it's been busy and it's been difficult to get a proper break in. And I've got a break coming up next week and my other half are taking the dog and we're just going to Cornwall mm. for 10 days, which would be lovely. But interestingly, I had calls this week and there were two gigs, actually, and one of them was in Paris, a really lovely gig for a big company. And, you know, it would have been a really nice little jollies. And I was really tempted, but it was like buying in the middle. I would mean cutting the holiday short to do the gig. And talking about that subject of non-negotiables, there was a real moment of thinking, oh, that would be such a nice gig and it would be great to get away. And da, da, da. And then part of me thought, but actually, no, this time that mm. is mapped out is our time. It's time to rest. It's time to recharge. Yeah. If I go back in that, actually, I'm not really respecting well, there were two things, really. I'm not really respecting myself, really, but I also promised my other half that yeah. we were going to win. It was downtime for us both. And I said, I'm not respecting what he wants either. So, you know, even though I'm tempted, part of me would like to do it. Actually, it's a no-brainer. I am going to say no to it because I have to prioritise these other things. And I think that I love that non-negotiables. I think that's an, we, we need to know what they are, don't we? Yeah, and, and they're all different for, for everyone, aren't they? Whether that's like Saturday afternoons or with my kids or yeah. I have to be in bed before 10 p.m. or whatever they are I think that like it yeah again it just kind of simple and makes sense but yeah. just can make the world a difference okay so quit bitching quit the resentment quit blaming others quit comparing and take accountability and ownership towards your own happiness and joy am I right Owen <laughs> <laughs> you've read my book haven't you <laughs> yes I have I mean, I think that's the thing about, you know, 10 times happier. I mean, 
if you look at the tape, tape you might think it's a, it's oh, it's a bit fluffy. Oh, how can I be ten times happier? But actually, that that book is is quite hard hitting because I think, look, you can't do my job. And you, one of the things about doing this job is you sometimes you just have to be brutally truthful. And um, and most people when they rock up at therapy. You know, they probably think that you're going to solve it all for them, are they? And, and most people rock up and they will justifiably sometimes have had the most terrible things happen and terrible situations and adversities that are, you know, unthinkable. And so, I, you know, and I don't minimize that in any way, shape or form. But ultimately, regardless of what's happened in anyone's life mm. and how difficult it's been, the bottom line is that the only way forward is for them to change how they respond to their life. Yeah. And that is a really hard thing for most people to hear because it's easier for someone to come in and say, yeah, but my life has been awful and this happened and my husband did this and I lost my job and it's all shit and it's all terrible. Um, and of course, it might be all of that. But then you kind of get to this point. It's almost like a duel, like a wrestling match in therapy. And you think, OK, well, you have two choices. So we can stay here with the awfulness and we can stay with the unfairness and we can stay with the terribleness of what's happened to you. Or we can salvage what we can from that and move forward. And that's always really tough. So it's like pulling somebody away from something. Yeah, but it's like, no, but this is mine. So, you know, I have the right to feeling this pity. I have the right to feel this angry. And of course they have. Mm -hmm. But then there comes a point and think, but what about beginning to let that go? Yeah. Because the only person that's damaging is ultimately the person who's holding on to the, the anger, the fear, the resentment, the comparing, the you know, the feeling victimized, whatever the context might be. And that is really hard for someone to hear because for the first time, sometimes they realize that they are responsible for the changes in their life. And of mm. course, that can be like a lead balloon sometimes because, well, what do you mean you're not going to fix me? Mm. And, mm. and it's that, well, actually, no, I'm not. I, I can guide you and I can use my experience and expertise to hopefully move you in the right direction, but taking responsibility and you know, learning to manage your emotions, learning to manage your thoughts. Stop comparing your life to other people. I do need you to take responsibility. And I think that's the perfect way to, to close this episode on understanding mental health better, because I certainly do <laughs> after our chat. I mean, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've loved it. It's been a great chat. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, right back at you. Hey, Gabby back with you thank you for making it through to the end of this episode I appreciate it was a bit of a hefty one but we wanted to make sure that you had a um, foundational understanding about mental health and I think Owen O'Kane has really really helped us to do this if you're not already following us on Instagram we are at my possible self and heads up if you want to put a face to this voice you can catch me going live every Thursday at 1pm UK time for our Insta Live series, Checking In, which is where I basically get to have a powwow with mental health ambassadors, influencers, celebrities, and it's an opportunity for you guys to put your questions directly to our experts as well. So that's Thursdays, 1pm on My Possible Self's Instagram. I've been at Radio Gabby. Until next time, take care. Bye.